for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. If you're new to the first degree, a word of warning. When we started the first degree, we were amateur podcasters, so apologies for any sound issues. They're really compelling stories, but the sound definitely gets better around episode 15. So with that being said, turn down your lights. Turn up that anxiety. Because this could happen to you. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Hey guys, welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. Welcome to our very first episode. We are so excited to have you guys. We've been working on the concept for this podcast for maybe almost a year now. Yeah. It's been a while. We are bringing true crime to you guys in a way that you have never heard it before, and we are stoked. If you don't know me, I am Jack Vanek. I am one-third of the Lady Gang podcast. We are a no-holds-barred, raw, unfiltered look at stumbling through womanhood, so it is completely 100% different than this podcast. So if you need something to listen to that's a little lighthearted after all this gruesome talk, then tune into the Lady Gang. Across from me is Alexis Linkletter. She's a true crime producer for such shows as Snapped. She made me do it. What other shows do you have? I worked on Three Days to Live. I did that special from the Menendez Brothers. I did CNN's Unmasking a Killer, which is all about trying to catch the Golden State Killer, which has since been caught, and you're working on the follow-up episode, right? Yes, I am now, and then I just finished a show for CBS called Pink Collar Crimes with Marsha Clark, and now I'm working on some other stuff for Oxygen and ID as we speak. Yeah, girl. Yeah. I'm next to Billy Jensen. He is an investigative journalist. He's written articles for everybody from Rolling Stone to who else? Los Angeles Magazine, Boston Magazine, New York Times. Just a little bit of everything. Everything, everything. A little bit of everything. And he also helped finish I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was by Michelle McNamara. And that book is everywhere. Everybody's reading it. Also about the Golden State Killer. Yes. Yes. And I also was uh, also producer as well, along with uh, Alexis. I uh, was on a show called Crime Watch Daily with Chris Hansen. Love Chris Hansen. Good old which, Chris Hansen. Which has recently just ended. And, uh, <laughs> but the website and the Facebook page and everything still survives. So. And get your Chris Hansen fix on. Yeah, you can get all, you of your, all of your fixes for any kind of predator information on there. Yeah. So I wanted to go in a little bit about the concept of the first degree and how this is different than other true crime podcasts out there and what we're going to bring to you guys that you haven't seen before. So, Billy, you want to take it away? Yes. The idea behind the first degree is that everyone at some point in their lives is one degree away from a violent crime. 
And those are the people that we're bringing on the show each week. So it might be somebody who was friends with a killer. It might be somebody who was friends with a victim. And these cases can touch people in so many different ways. But, you know, you never know uh, the person that you're sitting next to, the person that is in the cubicle next to you, the person that's on the treadmill next to you, the person in the other car as Mm -hmm. you're listening to this. One of them might be a killer at some point. And through our, particularly me and Alexis, as we would work on crime cases, we would find friends of people who would always say certain things like, you know, and they, one of the things that you would get from neighbors whenever there's a crime is that, oh, we never thought this would ever mm-hmm. happen. But sometimes you would get people that would say, you know what, I always knew there was something a little bit off about this person. Right. And then you start unpacking that and getting really deep into it. And you start learning some really interesting things about how there might have been a pattern coming up to this. Right. And those are the kind of things that we're going to explore. And I think it's interesting because when you hear a lot of these podcasts or watch true crime shows, you're always hearing from like a detective or somebody after the fact. And we don't get that many insights to people before these gruesome acts happened and kind of seeing into their personal lives because they were still a human. Exactly. And we'd like to also incorporate the detectives and prosecutors and people involved in the official capacity when we can, but that will be an extra bonus in addition to the account from the person who's one degree of separation personally from these stories. Right. We want to get real personal. Real personal. So should we just jump right into our story? Yes. This one, I've got to say, is really weird. And I think if anybody that's around millennial age will remember this show, Rock of Love, and that is where everything stemmed from. Exactly. And I'm sure you'd never thought that you would hear Rock of Love and True Crime in the same sentence, but we wanted to start our podcast out with a story that even if you've heard about it, you don't know the inside scoop on all of it. But if you're a millennial, you probably do know of Rock of Love, maybe even watched it. But I did. You did? Did Billy watch it? I watched it. <laughs> it was a competition dating show where dozens of women competed for the love of rock singer Brett Michaels, who was a member of the glam rock band Poison. Interestingly, this show headed the butterfly effect and which ended up being the catalyst for this bizarre and gruesome chain of events that really no one was expecting especially on the heels of such a lovable show like rock of love yeah just a wholesome wholesome show exactly so rock of love's sister show was flavor of love where people were trying to they were trying to find love for flavor flav a fellow long islander also uh, really classy oh, really? show yeah from long island absolutely yep me and alexis are both from long island <laughs> The first season featured 25 women. They were competing to be the girlfriend of Brett Michaels. And some of the challenges were based on situations that they might encounter if they were chosen to be Michael's girlfriend. The contestants on Rock of Love, it was a really interesting mix of women because you had some women that were for lack of a better term, like, um, you don't want to be celebrity, you want to be models. But then you had other women that were really into the rock and were, were a little bit was, older. And, yeah. Some groupies. Yeah, some groupies, but really, like, they had been through the mill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they had seen some things, man. But, oh, yeah. That Heather girl. Oh, my gosh. Her? I was she watching was, yeah. research for this show, and she loves Brett Michaels. Oh, man. she, <laughs> oh, I'm sure she went to over a dozen mm-hmm. Poison shows. She was in it for Brett Michaels. She was, yeah, she was really the most genuine of them all. Everybody else looked like, you know, maybe they were trying to get, you know, he's a very good looking guy. Obviously he's talented, but they were probably trying to get a little bit of fame out of it. Oh yeah. And that did work a little bit because it spawned a few spinoff dating shows, one of which starred Megan Hauserman. And she was one of the standout 
contestants, she kind of was painted as the villain. I think that's safe to she say. She was right? one of the villains. That Lacey girl was also a villain. But she was, she was yeah. She was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah. And so she ended up landing a dating show called Megan Wants a Millionaire. And I think that was based on something that she had said, right? She had said... Yeah, she said that she was just trying to be a trophy wife in the show. So then that spawned her whole... The concept for her show. Right. Okay. So they followed her on her journey to become that trophy wife. And 17 wealthy single men were going to compete for her love. And these were all men that were... That had to have a net worth of a million dollars or more. Mm-hmm. And she said, quote... She was looking for a mature guy that can handle me and doesn't cry. Aren't we all? I don't mind a crier. A crier means you're not a sociopath. <laughs> Does which it though? Which is a plus. So unless you're fake still, crying. Unless you're fake crying. Yeah. Or oh. if you're crying over an animal. No, yeah, a lot of sociopaths. That was actually. Wait, they, sociopaths cry over animals? Yeah, yeah. Not over them, meaning like, like over, their uh, over their bodies with their tears. <laughs> but no, you get a lot of times that this was actually a good thing that they did on The Sopranos where Tony shows no remorse for anything that he's doing. And then, you know, but when an animal gets hurt, like when that horse uh, gets burned up, it really affects him. Why is that? That's so weird. It's one of those things. I, ju- I thought that that was one of the trifectas of triage of sociopathy. Yeah. 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 I've got two of those. <laughs> I know the two, and I'm not going to say them. That's for another episode. Okay. So, anyways. So, uh, the uh, the contestants came out. Megan had her pick from a number of these handsome, wealthy guys. And one of them was this Canadian millionaire named Ryan Jenkins. So, Ryan made it to the very end, but he didn't end up winning the series. And after the series was over, his life spiraled a little bit into something that is truly, truly unbelievable. And it's ironic because it ends up being... The the most dramatic, insane, twisted story that is stranger than fiction and too crazy to even go on TV. So Ryan Jenkins, let's learn a little bit more about him. Let's learn about him. Everybody Google a picture of him as Google well. Google him we're just so we this. could paint the picture. But according to his LinkedIn, oh, he graduated from Mount Royal College in Calgary. He's Canadian, like we mentioned, in 1999. He did have a license to fly commercial airplanes. Very expensive hobby, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And he worked in investment sales as a president of a boutique development company focused on cutting-edge green technologies. He was also the son of a wealthy real estate developer in Alberta, so I think there was a family money component here. And he left his real estate job in early 2009 to pursue a Hollywood career (laughs) and found some success in the form of reality TV. So I think this is just the most L.A. thing ever. He said he did 500 different things, but what did he really do? That, there's conflicting... Nobody could figure it out. I really do think he had family money. So who really knows? Who knows? Who knows? He didn't only do the show Megan Wants a Millionaire. He also competed in I Love Money 3. He claimed to be worth millions. And like we said... Who really knows how he made that money? Very elusive about it. Very elusive. Exactly. Considering he said he found success in Hollywood, I feel like everything he's saying was a lie. Exactly. And then, just so you guys can, we can paint a picture of the kind of smooth talker <laughs> Ryan is, take a listen to this clip of Ryan on Megan's show. So is this the best date ever? Maybe. Maybe. I'm just to tell you at the end. I don't know if Megan and I have had enough time together for her to actually loosen up and really get to know me. I feel like you're manipulating me. <laughs> I wanted to show her a little bit of vulnerability to, you know, maybe make her a little more comfortable with me. The fact that in that clip she says, like, I think you're manipulating me. 
Very interesting. Very telling. And also, I want to be more vulnerable. No, he said I wanted to show more, show vulnerability, more vulnerability so she would trust not me. Be vulnerable. Not be vulnerable. Show vulnerability. True sociopath, narcissist. Truly. Yes. On the face of it, here's a guy that flies airplanes. Mm-hmm. He works at a cutting-edge green technology uh, development company, so he cares about the environment. And he's got money, and he also has family money, too. And then he's a good-looking guy. So on the face of it, he looks really, really good. He, he seemed looks like to have, the package. Seemed to have his finances in order, but he wanted to be an actor. And when some reality casting producer spotted him at a Vegas pool party, <laughs> he jumped at the opportunity to get on TV, uh, even if it was just reality TV. So on the show, they described him as, and this is a quote, a little bit of a Prince Charming, a little bit of a bad boy. Wait, no. He described himself oh, like that. <laughs> Even worse. You know a producer probably wrote that, though. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him. A little bit of a Prince Charming, a little bit of a bad boy. Why would you mention Prince Charming first and then not mention a bad boy? Like, what bad boy should he have mentioned specifically then? Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> Wow, you went right there. There was no hesitation. I know. Wow. If you're listening, Benicio, I'm here for you. (laughs) I am ready to date. All right. I was going to say Fonzie, but okay, fine. Fonzie? (laughs) Oh, my God. I can't even think of a good bad boy. Uh, Clive Owen. I was going to say Brad Pitt and something. Clive Owen, if you're also listening. Okay, a little bit. Is this a dating podcast now? (laughs) He described himself as a little bit of a Prince Charming, a little bit of a bad boy. I typically date girls who turn a lot of heads. He said on the show, I love the chase. That's such a douchebag. Come on. No one really likes the chase. No, that's not true. I guess all men. Shakespeare said a lover is like a hunter. If the game is easily caught, he cares for it. Not. Oh my God. Wow. (laughs) This is also, this is a romance podcast now. That's the only only Shakespeare quote you'll ever get. There is also a poem in this later. So we are getting quite poetic. We really are. So when Megan was doing Megan Wants a Millionaire, all of these kind of shows, they have their best friend, their confidant, somebody to give him advice and be a clear set of eyes. And it was her friend Brandy who was also on Rock of Love with her. They were just, you know, besties on the show. So she brought her along with her to give her advice and suss out the guys and really vet them to see if they were worthy of Megan's love. So Brandy was the one that had her ear more than anybody else. Obviously, we know that producers are always going to guide you one way or another in these types of shows. But but Brandy was the one that was being able to step outside of it and say, this guy is a good guy. This guy is a bad guy. Well, when you're in that situation, too, you're so blinded by everything and you kind of have love goggles on. So it's nice to have somebody from the side kind of being like, this guy's douchey. This guy has good intentions. So that's what Brandy was to Megan. Well, let's also punctuate the fact that they were all living in a house together in the Hollywood Hills. So this isn't a, a sterile environment where they're not really getting to know each other. I mean, Brandy really got to know Ryan. They right. were all together all the time, probably with their phones taken away, probably mm-hmm. no internet access. So it was really an immersive Ryan Jenkins experience for them. <laughs> it sure was. Well, my name's Brandy C, and I was on Rock of Love with Bette Michaels the very first season. I joined, I wanted to be on the show because I knew that it would take me places and put me on more shows. I had kind of seen the trajectory of VH1 and how they used their reality TV show characters often in their future shows. So I really did that show with the intentions not of finding love, but of continuing to be on reality TV for a very long time. Um, And I got my wish because after Rock of Love, I did I Love Money season one, 
which is the only season that aired. And then from there, I did Charm School with Sharon Osborne, which was a lot of fun. Um, and after that, Megan ended up getting her own show, and she was my best friend on a lot of our previous shows. So I got to be her sidekick, confidant on her own show when she was finding love. And how was that experience on Megan Wants a Millionaire? I want to say it was fun, but it was a little hectic. I had never been on the side where I wasn't a contestant before, so this was more being a cast, and so they would put you in for a few scenes, and then they would pull you out, and you'd be sitting for a while. So it was really hectic. It was long. It was like 17-hour days, Um, but it it was good. It was a good experience to do with Megan because it was stressful for her, and I know having me there probably helped out a lot. So tell us about meeting Ryan Jenkins, and obviously when you did, you didn't know what was to come. So pretending you didn't know what you now know, what was your initial impression of him? And tell me a little bit about him. Oh my God, honestly, and I am not making this up at all, but I could tell from the second I met him, he was just kind of like a slimy person. I don't think I knew like, oh, he's an evil horrible person, but he did seem a little slimy, like he was just there to kind of get his face out there, and, you know, Megan was hot, so that was cool to him, too, but he didn't seem like a very good guy to me at first. Well, how does that separate from the other guys that were on there? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of people that are going on the reality shows just to get their face out there, so Mm -hmm. what, what really was it that made him so, like you said, slimy? Actually, I could tell because I did the same thing. So maybe I like saw on him what I did on Rock of Love. Um, but uh, uh, excuse me. But also, I just I don't know. A lot of the guys were very genuine who were there. The casting people there are really good at finding people who really believe. Like it's so true that I'm going to marry this person that I win this reality show with. So there were a lot of very genuine guys there, and they were like putting their heart and soul into it. And there was Ryan, who just kind of was like that guy that so full of himself. He thinks he doesn't really have to try. He's just there. He's automatically going to be given everything on a platter. I don't know. He's very full of himself and very cocky. Is there anything redeemable about him? <laughs> yeah. Was there any good like, were there any? Was he funny? Was he kind of charming? Was there anything that made you think maybe he's not a slime ball? After a few days, he was so charming. And he was trying to win. So he would come up. It was me and um, Cecile from um, Beauty and the Geek. She was Megan's other sidekick. So he would come up to me and Cecile and try to, you know, win our good graces, get on our good side. Because he was trying to win. So he was charming. And after a couple of days, I did warm up to him more. Was he manipulative at all? Because we actually, were, when we we're researching a clip from Megan talking to him, and she's like, I feel like you're manipulating me. I remember that. Now that you said that, I actually remember that part. I think I remember her saying that. Um, for us, I do. That's what I'm thinking. It's just that when I say he's slimy, I couldn't think of a better word for it. Just one of those guys who's just willing to do whatever he has to do to get what he wants. Right. So I do think he is very manipulative. Megan was smitten with him. I don't know why. It's she likes a whole bunch of different types of guys, so it's not a type thing. Megan was absolutely enamored with him. He didn't end up winning Megan with the millionaire. I think he got second place. They tend to put somebody that the um, person really likes in second place, and then they have some other person win because they want to use the other person more in future shows, so they can't win the show they're on. Really? So So, Ryan got second place. So do you think he got second place because the producers were trying to put him in something else after? Yeah, he actually went on to do I Love Money, I think season two or three, and he won that show. That's why it never kept going. That's why there's no more seasons. Yeah, he won I Love Money. 
he won I Love Money 3. Oh. Yeah. So, so he did want to use him in future shows, so they put him, Megan wanted him, she was in love with him, and so they put him in second place so they, they could cast him in another show. So Megan... Kind of like their little right, recipe there. Right. So, and we all know this, that the producers of these shows always push the contestant into one direction or the other, um, but Megan yeah. wanted him. She wanted this guy. She wanted to... This was the guy that she wanted to marry. Right, and she she actually hung out with him after the show, which is the scariest part. Um, when you you know when you see like um, a scene on the show and then they cut to that person talking about that scene, mm-hmm. those are actually filmed way at the end of the show when everything's like said and done. You have to do days of interviews, and they remind you of what happened and they get you to talk about whatever happened. So Megan was doing her interview days when everything was already said and done, and I'm trying to get a hold of her. I'm like, where are you? Like, I know you're only there for a few hours a day. Why aren't you? Why aren't hanging out? Where are you? And it turned out she was actually staying in her hotel and hanging out with Rowan after the show. And then what, so what happened with the guy that she ultimately chose or the producers told her to choose? I actually have no idea. <laughs> Didn't work out. Um, yeah. So right after the show, right after the show wrapped, she never really spoke to him again and she went right back to Ryan. Right. Like, I think she really doesn't have any reason to speak to the people because they tell you until it airs, there's really going to be no communication. You just have to kind of wait for it to air. And then the reunion show usually comes, and that's the first time they see that they would see Megan again. So whoever did win, I actually don't even remember who won. Um, that person would know that they had to wait a few months. But she was shocking up with Ryan on the fly. So. And did he ever, uh, was he just all about Megan, or did he ever hit on you or hit on um, any of the other uh, people, crew members? or anything like that that were on the set? Uh, um, I feel like he was very careful on set to just be a great guy and like a perfect contestant. So no, he didn't go as far as to hit on us. Um, try to remember, one, a couple guys tried to be really sweet to us. Like I remember one guy tried to give me a foot massage or something. I was like, that's weird. Did you say yes? Because um, I would have. <laughs> so, I'm like, you're trying to date my friend. Like, just leave my feet alone. But I think Ryan was just, he had a good strategy in place. He was going for I mean, he was he was in it to win it for the show. It was like a competition for him. Yeah. And is there right, anything exactly. is there is there anything looking back that's telling or did it, you or know like any, any interesting stories or creepy situations? Uh, I was just thinking like the fact that he was able to win I Love Money. I know that shows very manipulative because I was on the first season and you really have to make these alliances and you know lie to certain people and get other people on your side. So that could show really how manipulative that he was that he was capable to go on and win a show like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, so that right there. he seems like a textbook sociopath to me. Yeah. Yeah. He was very honestly, narcissistic. He's extremely narcissistic. Megan Wants a Millionaire comes to an end. Right. The show wraps. Interestingly, that's when the dark, unintended, twisted real-life drama really started. On Saturday, August 15th, around 8.30 p.m., Ryan actually made a call to the West Hollywood Police Department to file a missing persons report. He told the officers that his 28-year-old wife, Jasmine Fiore, was missing. Jenkins said they had gone to San Diego for a poker event and that after returning, she dropped him off at their 
shared home and said she was going to go run errands, but then she never returned. He gave the police a really detailed description of his, his wife and described her as a petite and beautiful blonde, perfect teeth, who had just gotten a fresh manicure before she vanished. He also said that Jasmine had been wearing pink tank top, black flip-flops, and white pants. And in a short narrative, he essentially said Jasmine sent him a few text messages after he last saw her, including one that's saying that she was in Santa Monica and that she needed to grab some stuff. Now, this is kind of weird because how does he have a fiancé when he was just on a reality show? A wife. Oh, a, a wife. How Even does he have crazier. a wife after he just finished a reality show trying to date somebody weeks. else? It's, it had only been like eight weeks. That's insane. Right. Yeah. So, do you know how Megan felt once she found out that he was randomly engaged to a new woman that he had just met? I think we filmed in February, and it didn't air till August. So by August time, that was like three weeks in, I think it was around the third week of August. Um, By that time, I think Megan and Ryan kind of just like, they didn't continue on. She was busy, um, appearances and doing whatever else, getting ready for the show. And then I think it wasn't, I mean, she really, really liked him, but I think it's just like, it kind of just fell apart. They were too far away, didn't continue talking. But I wasn't around her when she first found out that he was married, so I'm not really sure how she reacted to that news. And, well, he rebounded pretty quickly. And yeah. where did he rebound? The same place that he was found? Vegas. <laughs> and he Vegas met, was a spot. He met uh, model Jasmine Fiore uh, while he was at a Vegas casino. The pair fell hard for each other, and they got married almost immediately. Two days after they met? Two days after they met, according to the Clark County Marriage Certificate, which was uh, March 18th, 2009. I also have a Clark County Marriage Certificate, actually. You got I was, married in Vegas? I was married in Vegas, yeah. Did you get really? married at a little chapel? Yep. Really? A little chapel of the West, yeah. Same place where uh, Mickey Rooney got married eight times, <laughs> which you'd think by the sixth, the woman's going to be like, you know what? It's Maybe like I bad, should go to a different place. place. Maybe a different venue yeah. would be nice. Also, same place that Richard Gere and Sidney Crawford got married. Wow. Again. Another like, bad omen. Sluts. Yeah, yeah. Seriously. Yeah, that's a bad omen. <laughs> but we've been fine. Uh, anyway, so yeah, they got married at the Little White Wedding Chapel on the Las Vegas Strip. That's not where I got married. <laughs> okay. um, we got married at the Little Chapel of the West. So. Right. And for the first couple weeks, things <laughs> seemed happy between them. We pulled some audio that from video that appeared on Ryan Jenkins' MySpace page. MySpace, it's such a throwback. Yeah. We're going to play that for you right now. The, the first one is of the visual component is Jasmine dancing for Ryan at a pool party. The second is one where she's looks like Havasu. Yeah, something. it looks like they're at a lake. And actually, it's only two. So <laughs> two audio components, and that's what those are. <laughs> nice. Oh, there is three, and that last one was them dancing at a nightclub when he said, I love you, baby. Oh. It seemed happy enough, but, I mean, we all know how people portray themselves on social media, and it is a lot different than what goes on behind closed doors, usually. This is also what they refer to, literally, as the honeymoon period. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. they just happen to get married during the honeymoon period. Totally. We're going to tell you a little bit about Jasmine. She grew up in Bonnie Dune. 
which is a small California community outside of Santa Cruz. Um, she started her career as a swimsuit model, and she also worked for Playboy doing promo golf events, but she was never actually in the magazine posing. She also frequently worked as a body-painted model for parties and entertainment, and she appeared in some Las Vegas casino shows. Also acted in commercials for adult phone lines and was featured in an advertisement for Howard Stern. She kind of did promo work and stuff like that. However, she was super ambitious, and she recently obtained her real estate license and was also planning to open a gym and a personal training center. So she was beauty and brains, which is a great combo. Yeah. Jasmine is super sexy and she seems really exuberant, happy. She's smiling in all the pictures you can find of her. Super outgoing, fun, love to have a good time. And yeah, I mean, she obviously knew that she was a smoke show and used her looks for it, which no shame in that. But then, yeah, also was had these big goals for her life. Right. So Ryan reports his wife missing. And meanwhile, and this was the evening of August 15th, that that missing persons report was filed with the West Hollywood Police Department in the city of Buena Park, California. In the morning of August 15th, 2009, a very strange discovery was made. About 7 o'clock this morning, uh, my assistant manager was um, told by a gentleman collecting cans in the back that he saw a suspicious black bag and uh, that they thought something was um, funny about it. So they got me, woke me up, and I went back and looked at the suitcase. The uh, suitcase was about 2 feet by 2.5 feet by 3.5 feet carry-on. Uh, with the zipper, was partially open or, bur- or it had burst open, and I lifted up on it and, and saw that it was a... Uh, um, a body of an extremely small person, extremely small. If you were to uh, cut my leg in half and try to put it in the bag, it would not fit in there. So um, the first initial thing that I was told and that, that I saw that was a, it was a small female child, um, unclothed, and they told me uh, later, the detective, I guess, said that it was a 20-year-old or approximately 20-year-old female. Um, and that's about what happened. At that time, I called 911, called the, the residents on site to make them or have them check their children and keep their children inside. Um, at first, uh, you know, I wasn't sure, so I, I, I verified with the detectives. It is, in fact, a dead body. Um, I've seen dead bodies before, but it's just it was a shock being so small. And uh, the first thing I, th- I think of, we have an empty building back there. Um, just just the way it looked to me, it looked like it was something that was dumped here. Um, you know, and it, it, it would have to be somebody with knowledge of the area to know that those are back there. So, grisly discovery, and once the coroner did an autopsy, it was revealed that the body had been badly beaten and crushed, and the police were also shocked to discover that the teeth of the victim and the fingers had been removed from the victim as well. And the police were able to find teeth fragments in the suitcase along with the body. And I thought what I was looking at were her fingernails. And I thought, well, what's wrong with her hands? What's wrong with her fingernails? And then I realized it was bones. And that's when I realized... Oh, no. Her fingers are gone. And that's when it went from, oh, amateur hour, we're going to have this guy in custody in the next 24 hours, uh, because they didn't know what they were doing, to, oh, my, we, this is something different. And the first thing we thought was, she's not going to have any teeth either, because what's the point in taking our fingers? And sure enough, uh, as soon as the coroner got to that point in the investigation, we was able to turn the head, and he opened up the mouth, the teeth were gone. Uh, there were pieces of te- teeth, but a f- uh, piece chipping, 
teeth chippings because he wasn't like a dentist. He wasn't being careful pulling them out. It was a brutal. He was pulling them out. He's cracking out the teeth as he was doing it. Who being thrown away like a piece of garbage? Who being mutilated? Who being left nude? I mean, all these things it just struck an, emo an emotional chord with our entire department. The autopsy also revealed that the victim had been strangled, the remains had been mutilated, obviously, to prevent recognition. And the suspect's efforts to thwart the identifying of the body was effective because it would take three days to identify the small-statured individual in the suitcase after the discovery of the remains. So let's talk about the teeth being removed, and let's talk about the fingers being removed. So, I mean, for anybody that doesn't follow true crime that much, why would a murderer end up doing that? Well, I'm not sure how fast the process is, Billy, but how long or what system do they use to identify bodies with dental records? Well, you Assume need to go to their someone, dentist. But you need to suspect that it is someone. It's not like they have Oh, you some. can't just take somebody's teeth? I don't and think no, they of have course a, not. No, database. it's not like DNA. They don't have a teeth database. Yeah, you need to have an inkling of if you find <laughs> remains, you would go to that person's dentist who have done the, the um, either they've done orthodontia work or they've done the regular uh, dental work where they've done the x-rays yeah. and they'd be able to go in and say, all right, is just the same person. You, right. could, you know, it's not like DNA or even like a thumbprint or something where you would put it into a database. Now you have to know or have a good idea at least who the person is. Right. So by taking out the teeth and cutting off the fingers, he was trying to evade ever identifying the body, which is really fucking gruesome. Yes. And it's one of those things now that especially with everything that's happened with with DNA and having caught the Golden State Killer and having caught all of these other murderers through familial DNA, it sounds so strange to go through all this stuff. But this is 2009. Right. And DNA was around for 20 years in terms of catching criminals. But, you know, this guy had seen obviously something somewhere that said this might be a good idea to take out the teeth and then, you know, remove the fingers. Right. Uh, it's incredibly gruesome. And, you know, you have to wonder, did they get pleasure from that too? Mm -hmm. You know, was this just a matter of I'm going to try and cover this up or did they say, you know what, this is something that I'd like to do as well, which is take out the teeth. And uh, yeah. The I mean, the unbelievable thing to do that you would think that there would have to be some kind of pleasure getting taken out of it if somebody's going to go through all of that and make a body so small to fit into a tiny little carry-on like that. Or you're just that committed to not getting caught. That's true. But that's such then a... why would you just dump it in like a random... Yeah. That was just such an open place to Is dump it a random? body. Well, they found it in like two hours. I mean, I don't know. We don't know when it was dumped. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that you're trying to think of when you do bury somebody or, or put somebody in the trash is what you're hoping as a criminal is that the trash will get picked up soon. Right. It will go into the landfill and then it'll never be seen again. And there's certainly a lot of people who've been caught that way and, and a lot of people who missing persons have been there forever and they've been incinerated or, or whatever has, has happened or they're actually still, their remains are still sitting in landfills. Was the suitcase actually in the dumpster yeah. or was it to the side? Okay. In the dumpster. Okay. I got it. Yeah. So what he's hoping for is that the garbage man will come by, pick it up, take it to the, the dump site and then it'll be, gone forever. it'll be gone forever. Right. So what happens next? So after this discovery, so they've got a Jane Doe in their hands and this is the Buena Park police department. So remember Buena Park is right near where uh, it's where Knott's Berry Farm is. It's right near where Disneyland is. It's about 30 miles South of Los Angeles. But the Wayne Park Police Department's been alerted of two missing persons reports that have been filed on the behalf of Jasmine Fiore. And the descriptions of Jasmine provided by Ryan and Jasmine's mother, who had also filed that police report, 
mirrored some of the same characteristics of the body in the suitcase. You know, due to the victim's missing teeth and missing fingers, probably they would have gone straight to the fingerprints first, but odds are she wouldn't have her fingerprints on file. Yeah, I was going to say, when does one have their fingerprints on file? It's only if you've been arrested, mostly. If you've been arrested, also, there's a couple of of groups that go on and get kids' uh, fingerprints for if they ever go missing. Missing persons, yeah. Yeah, so those are supposedly stored in some sort of database. Yeah, okay. But the police were unable to use any prints or dental records, but on August 18th, three days after the discovery of the body, the police were able to conclusively ID the victim, and it was the missing model, Jasmine Fury. Interestingly, I don't know if people realize this, but Jasmine had breast endowment surgery, and they were really, really beautiful. (laughs) Just a side note. Right. So, and they were able to identify her using the serial number on her breast implants. So same thing. You have to have an inkling that this is somebody specific because there's no database for this. But due to the similarities between the victim and the police reports, they suspected they may have Jasmine Fiore. So they went back to her doctor and they keep records of the serial numbers on these implants. So that's how they were able to positively ID her, which is super interesting. I have a question. So if she didn't end up having breast implants, what would be the next way to identify a body? Well, generally, I mean, they could use tattoos or piercings, but if you don't have anything, I guess DNA. Uh, but that would just but take also, a long also, time. you know, potentially a visual ID too. Yeah, but if yeah, she, apparently she was too mutilated. Yeah. yeah, so that would have been the first. That's the first with anything, obviously. Right. And then it would, yeah, they would probably have had to have gone to DNA after that's this. So crazy, God. Yeah. Okay. And the reason why they give uh, serial numbers and they track them is because just in case that there is a potential issue, this the manufacturer of the breast implant says, wait a minute, we just we messed up and a bunch of people are getting so sick like from recalls it. Or they anything. can go in the same way they have recalls for a a car. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So they do conclusively ID Jasmine's body as being Jasmine. Right. And at this point, the media has caught one of the story. There's this beautiful blonde bombshell and she's married to this reality star. And what I want to talk about, which is interesting that I came across during my research for this episode is that in 2009, there was this weird phenomenon happening, at least being revealed at this time to me, because there was an article about it. But As of noon on August 24th, 2009, Jasmine Fiore death photo was number six on Google's trend chart. It maps the rapid increase of popularity of what people are searching for. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was crazy. Okay. Do you remember that website rotten.com? That's, it was all of those. It was like disgusting death at every nasty thing that should not be on the internet that should belong on the dark web was on rotten.com. I'm sure that's where that came yeah, from. But what really bothers me about it is that there's this sexual component because yeah. she was so beautiful. Yeah. And my concern is in seeing this in America's only in the media has only gotten more violent mm-hmm. since then is that people are titillated by, by the idea of a gorgeous dead woman, especially if it was number six. That's not, it's like, that's not just like creeps looking at a hundred normal people, people exactly. looking, that are so interested mm-hmm. in something so disgustingly gruesome. And there's something psychologically wrong with that. Right. And this goes as far as TMZ, which is a very large media outlet posted a really, it was grainy, but it was a shot of, where you could see the suitcase that Jasmine had been stuffed 
in and a fate outline of her mutilated body could be seen. So there was a huge backlash towards this, obviously. And they took it down really quickly. But I'm saying this at this time was acceptable to the point where TMZ thought it was appropriate to post that. I know. Because people wanted it. They're business people, but you know, they knew that that's what people wanted to see. And it just is very disturbing. Cannot be anything more exposing than that. Yeah. You Google her and you have these options to see these dead photos of her, which is so, I think, demeaning and so, you know, disrespectful to her family. Yeah, that's horrible. And then also, I mean, you were talking about the the use of the photos that the media chose. Right. So you can Google Jasmine Fiore and Ryan Jenkins and all of these pictures that they're showing of her. They're like salacious kind of photos with low cleavage and she looks very sexual. And I was asking Alexis about this when we're doing research. Where does the media find these photos to post and why do they choose the ones that they choose? Because I'm sure there's a lot of unsexy photos of her out there. However, I mean, does it help for these media outlets to be slapping this sexy, sexy woman with a murder case attached to her? Is that going to get them more ratings? Is that why they do it? Yeah, I think they were packaging this as a Hollywood murder mystery. Right. They could put a picture of this very gorgeous woman, scantily clad, next to Ryan Jenkins, looking like handsome reality star. Right. And they kind of ran with it, because if you look at the headlines, reality star, model wife is missing. They really played that up, because people are... There's an allure. Right. You know, what they would normally do in, you know, having worked in news for two decades now, it's not just Hollywood. You're going to go for the most salacious picture. It's the it's yeah and before this before social media you would often go to the driver's license photo mm-hmm. and then you would go to uh, if the person was fairly young probably under 25 you would go to the yearbook photo right and <sighs> those are the only two that were kind of easily gotten so that's not one of those things that say I mean say it's a missing persons case or something can the family offer up a photo yeah. like they for missing persons you want the most accurate representation of what and the person recent. looks like yeah. now. Right. Same hair color. If they had just gotten piercings or anything like that, you want the most recent photo. Right. But for a murder case, they want the most eye-catching clickbait photo. Right. Which is cleavage, blonde hair. There's tons of pictures of her in costume. Come on, you guys. I know. I know. Sexy referee. Really? (laughs) Is that what we need to be posting right now? Exactly. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program. And it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally. First with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash first today. 
It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. So now Jasmine has been conclusively identified as the murder victim in this case. And that's when the speculation and media firestorm starts. It doesn't take long for news outlets to latch on to this news. Obviously, you have this bombshell wife, model wife of a reality TV star. Uh, who was just found murdered and stuffed in a suitcase. This is going to be the lead story, not just locally in Southern California, but nationally and even internationally. Mm -hmm. So Ryan Jenkins is now front and center. But he wasn't the only one that came under suspicion. And it turned out Jasmine had quite a few secrets. She'd apparently had a first marriage that very few people knew about. You know, she had boyfriends. There were all possibilities. The police definitely were zeroing in on the man who was closest to her, which was her husband, her current husband, Ryan Jenkins. They focused on him with good reason. He reported her missing suspiciously on the day her body was found. And also, they wanted to talk to him, but they couldn't find him. When they went to their shared West Hollywood penthouse, they discovered that it had been totally cleared out. And their inability to locate him fueled the concerns, obviously, that he may be on the run and headed across the border back to his native Canada. Many people who knew the couple recounted also a very jealousy-fueled and tumultuous relationship. During their relationship, Jasmine had complained to friends and family that she caught Ryan using her car to bring women back to their apartment when she wasn't home and that he would even hide her clothes so that it looked like a bachelor pad. I would have. I mean, come on fire. Come on. Um, They hadn't even been married a few weeks when he started all these 
boy hijinks. So there was also some unsubstantiated rumors about Jasmine's decision to marry Ryan Jenkins being based on his desire and need for a green card and a golden ticket to American citizenship. No one really knows if that's true or not, but there's rumors about that. Yeah. The two fought really frequently. And from the beginning, Ryan had been super jealous of Jasmine's relationships with her ex-boyfriend. In fact, in June of 2009, court records reveal that Jasmine had pressed charges against Ryan, citing battery constituting domestic violence for hitting her on the arm. Her ex-boyfriend, Travis, had been present at the incident, and apparently Ryan had gotten jealous that Jasmine and Travis were talking. He hit her in the arm, and she fell into a nearby pool at a Vegas hotel. Oh, my God. So Ryan was supposed to go on trial for that in December, but the pair ended up reconciling, and she dropped the charges. Right. So when somebody drops the charges like that, that's just off your record. So if There's somebody, no, yeah, somebody did not. a background check on that, that case would, if you're not convicted, it's not on your record. Okay. Yeah. As far as whether they got reconciled or not, the fighting actually got so bad that uh, Jasmine had filed annulment papers on June 2nd, which is a little over two months before her disappearance to end this three month marriage of theirs. And after the papers were filed, Jenkins went to Mexico to participate in another reality TV show. And Shocker. Uh, apparently uh, the entire time he was there, he was sitting on the phone trying to win her back. That's from people that were had knowledge of the show. So this, I just think it's a funny thing that, I mean, you look at their videos on MySpace and like everything that they posted in all of these pictures and they just looked like the happiest couple ever. And behind closed doors, their relationship was so tumultuous and it, there's so much going on mm-hmm. that it's just a very interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Well, he's all about appearances. And so, I mean, I can't speak for her, but she's beautiful and she had all these sexy pictures. Appearances are very important to some people. Right. Now, this is my favorite part where he wrote her this beautiful poem. Well, he eventually did convince Jasmine that he wanted her back. And Jasmine's mom said that he'd written poems for her, said he prayed, and also said he had this huge spiritual awakening, which was manipulation to get Jasmine to give him another chance. And it ended up working. Right. Who would like to do a I feel like dramatic you want reading? To read, I feel like you want to read the poem. <laughs> I love a shitty poem. Go for it. Okay. So he had written her an email from July 27th, 2009. And in this email is a beautiful poem. And it says, if you can come back to me and stop all the craziness, we can have a wonderful life. Your forgiveness, trust, and loyalty is all I need right now. And when your love for me grows and our lives are heading in the right direction, I'll truly feel complete. I will never leave you. I only want you. I guess that's not really a poem, but it's it's like a a rhyme. (laughs) It's free form. Right. So Jasmine fell back into his arms after the stream of these poems and got back together. And then they decided to head off to a poker tournament together on August 13th. They checked into the La Berge Del Mar Hotel in San Diego. By the way, it's a great hotel. Is it? Yeah, it's fantastic. They go after the races. Oh, -hmm. oh yeah. I think I've been over there, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is August 13th, and now remember everyone, Ryan reported Jasmine missing on the 15th. Oh yeah, so I have a question about that. Why does a murderer end up filing a missing persons report or calling 911 or doing that kind of a thing after they commit a murder? To make it seem like it wasn't them. Do they think it's going to work? Well, they think it's, it would be super weird if your wife was missing you didn't report them <laughs> missing. That looks more suspicious. I think it's kind of weird if you make a missing persons report and then just flee the area. Well, that's also bad, too. (laughs) 
it's all bad. You saw when, Scott Peterson doing that. Yes. Uh, it's all yes. bad when you did it. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of this missing persons report, I want to revisit something really interesting that I noticed. And remember the description he gave to the West Hollywood police that she mm. had perfect teeth and had just gotten her nails done. You know, her body was found without her teeth and with missing fingers. fingers. So in my mind, I think he's doing a little checklist, really punctuating those two things. So that's what they're looking for. And then they won't be able to ID her. And it's kind of like a Freudian slip to me. Where I I'm think like, it is too, yeah. You had a spontaneous subconscious reveal here. And well, it just, got really up close and personal with her teeth and her fingers. So yeah. And they, they believe that they were pulled out with pliers, which is so gruesome. So gruesome. Awful. Okay, so the last place that Jasmine had been seen alive was with Ryan at that San Diego hotel where the poker tournament was being held. And one of the witnesses came forward during the investigation and said that they had seen Ryan and Jasmine at the poker game, and they claimed that the pair seemed to be gambling, drinking heavily, and fighting pretty heavily as well. So the police pulled surveillance footage from the hotel cameras, and the couple was seen getting into Jasmine's Mercedes at 2.30 a.m. on Friday, August 14th, after attending the charity poker tournament, and I'm pretty sure that was the last time that anybody saw her alive, right? Yeah, because two hours later at 4.30 a.m., he's seen on surveillance video returning to the hotel alone. There's a two-hour difference where... Or where is she? Right. So yeah. then he ended up checking out of the hotel and leaving alone at 9.20 a.m. the next morning. And when the police went into their hotel room, they found bloodstains on the patio adjacent to their room. So the phone records place Jenkins near the 91 and 15 freeways, which is in Orange County, between 11 and 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., the time during which the police suspected he uh, went off-road. So then witnesses in Buena Park, near the building where Jasmine's body was found, reportedly saw a Mercedes pulling into the Buena Park apartment complex, and the body ended up being dumped there around 3.30 p.m. And interestingly enough, Jasmine drove a Mercedes and was still missing. Surprise, surprise. Interesting. After that, Jenkins reported Fiore missing, and then he was off the radar, so... Then he was on the run. Right. And, you know, police continue their investigation, and more and more is revealed. They uncover the fact that he was convicted in Canada uh, of assault in 2007, which came from an incident with a past girlfriend. He was sentenced to 15 months probation which also included counseling for sex addiction and domestic violence. So this was obviously before he went on the show, and that's something that they should have found if they did a thorough background check. Exactly. If they would have found that, there's no way he would have ever been on a dating show. Right. No chance. Which is crazy because, especially recently, I am a big Bachelor fan, but they have also missed some really big missteps on some of their contestants that they put on TV. It's kind of crazy that they're hiring these professional companies to do background checks and you're missing these huge, huge bombshells. Just an interesting. No, it's so interesting. Yeah. Happens all the time. And so now we have a killer reality star on the loose. So around 9 a.m. on August 16th, the day after reporting Jasmine missing and after spending time packing up his apartment as quickly as he could, Ryan hit the road and slipped out of L.A. What's the first kind of piece of information you heard about the shit show that ensued? I was visiting my family in Florida, and I remember the second it happened, I was watching the fireworks show at Disney World, 
And all of a sudden, my phone starts blowing up. I had all these missed calls, missed texts, and everyone's like, oh, my God, are you okay? I heard what happened. And then as I looked into it more, it's like Ryan Jenkins on the run murdered this girl. And I was just, like, trying to Google as fast as I could and figure everything out. How did you feel about being in such close quarters with this person and he's suspected of this horrific crime? And could have, you know, this crime could have happened to one of your best friends. Right, and that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, I know Megan was talking to him right after the show. I started texting her to make sure that she wasn't still in contact with him. Mm-hmm. She was not willing to. She didn't want anything on text without even knowing him, so she's like, call me. So I called her, and we talked. She's like, no, I haven't seen him in a while. Um, but she was freaking out. And the other thing that was really crazy is we were getting phone calls and messages from all sort of media outlets, and we weren't allowed to talk about it. So that was very scary, too, because I would get, like, several calls from people magazine or TMZ, and if they couldn't get through, they would kind of, like, call you and pretend to be a friend, and then they would let on that they were someone else. They were trying to, like, trick us into talking to them, but that would have violated that contract with VH1. So it was very scary, and it was just very, like, stressful and chaotic the whole time. Now, did Megan say uh, that she was fearful for her life because he was on the loose? I don't think she was fearful for her life. I did ask her, do you think he'll try to contact you? And she said that she didn't think he would. But she was a disaster. She was devastated. She was crying. Her show just got taken off the air that she worked so hard on, too. And just knowledge she was around him, she was close to him, and that this person could commit that type of action. Like She's been well, in bed with him. She spent nights and weeks with him. And it's <gasps> like, oh, my God. Where was she physically when you were talking to her? I think she was down South Florida when she she's always lived in South Florida. Okay, so you were close to you were at Disney World watching the fireworks. Or yeah, Disneyland. I was in Orlando. You were in Orlando. Okay. Disney World. Yeah, everything came crashing down in an instant. So I just kind of went into hiding. Moved back home. Didn't really talk to anybody for a while. After the initial shock of it, did you speak to Megan at all? And did what was she most freaked out about? Honestly, what she was most freaked out about was the fact that she didn't really want to talk about it much because at this point, police were questioning her about how she knew him, how close she was to him, and things like that. And I think at that point, she was so freaked out that it was so close to her and hitting home Mm -hmm. that she also did the same thing. Like, didn't want to talk to anybody, didn't want to bring it up, didn't even want to talk to me about it. Don't even, I want to pretend like I never knew this person or even know these people. And she kind of turned around, didn't do any more shows, interviews. Anything like that. Yeah, it's traumatizing. God, I know. I can't it's even imagine. Traumatizing. I cannot even imagine. Just, I he... can't even imagine like, being in the same room as him and meeting him and him smiling, but I can't imagine for Megan like, being romantic with him and things like that. The police were really concerned because they knew Ryan had the financial resources to finance his flee from the law. U.S. Marshals immediately offered a $25,000 reward for his capture. And when contacted by police, he did answer and he said he was in Utah and, quote unquote, headed to Canada to resolve some immigration issues. It's just like, come on. Yeah. Just conveniently heading to Canada. Exactly. Following day, August 18th, which was when Jasmine's body was conclusively identified, the murder was then officially reported in the media. August 19th, Ryan Jenkins called his dad from Birch Bay, Washington. So he's close to Canada. And his father told Ryan that he found out Jasmine had been found murdered. And I'm curious as to, like, if he was honest with his dad or feigned worry or feigned shock. But no one really knows that family dynamic that he had with his dad. 
So, and then another sheriff's department in Washington received witness reports that Ryan Jenkins's black BMW SUV towing a boat towards the U.S.-Canada border was spotted. And police later found the BMW SUV in an empty boat trailer at a marina in Blaine, Washington. The engine was still warm. They had just, just, just missed, missed him. him. So at the time all this, this manhunt's happening, Ryan Jenkins was the only person of interest, but he had not been charged, though Canadian authorities had been alerted to watch for them. So the U.S. Coast Guard and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection did confirm that they had boats patrolling the northwest Washington waters looking for him trying to cross over. So on August 19th, a man matching Jenkins' description was seen piloting his boat into a marina in the border town of Point Roberts, where Jenkins' stepmother lives. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police announced that they believe Jenkins crossed into Canada sometimes between August 19th and the 20th. He was finally charged with Jasmine's murder on August 20th, and the arrest warrant was issued. All right. So, you know, he goes from driving a Mercedes to a BMW, and now he's in a PT Cruiser. The only thing that can make that worse is if it was a purple one with flames or a woody. With a young blonde woman, and he pulls up to the uh, Thunderbird Motel. So there was crazy speculation about who this woman was and whether she was helping him evade capture. And it was eventually revealed that it was his sister who had checked into the hotel. So here is my question about this whole situation. Obviously, it's now known that he has been charged with murder. I'm sure he knows but my question is, what the hell okay. yeah. could the sister be thinking right now? Like, is she helping him evade police? Because now is she almost an accessory to murder? Well, they defended him in the media, his family, because when he was on the run. So I think at this point they had doubts about his guilt. So I think people go into pretty heavy denial when it's their family. And But he's obviously not surrendering himself to the police. Sure. But, you you know, all he's going to say is, listen, you know, I'm not a, a citizen in that country. They're railroading me. She just had this ex-husband who just got out of jail. Right. You know, he's probably the one that did it. They're going to try and get me, please. This is a family member, and you're going to often believe that person. Right. Okay, so the car had Alberta license plates, and it pulled up uh, beside a dumpster. And rather than pulling up beside the rooms, which the hotel manager claimed to have found kind of strange. Jenkins stayed in the car while the young woman paid cash for three nights of accommodations. The manager described the woman as attractive, about 25 to 30 years old, and very calm. The guest in the room next door said the woman stayed for about 20 minutes with Jenkins and then left the motel. And the woman turned out to be his half-sister, Alina Jenkins. The manager saw Jenkins walking outside the motel the next day, August 21st, 2009. The manager said Jenkins looked exhausted and he was not recognizable from his picture on television, which might have also been the reason why the excuse why. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, he didn't look like his picture. That's why I didn't call the police. Right. So at 11.30 a.m. on August 23rd, the couple, well, I don't want to necessarily call them a couple, but they uh, they failed to check out. That'd be a whole other story. No, God. And having noticed that there was very little uh, further activity over the weekend, the manager and the nephew decided to check on the room. That's when they made a gruesome discovery. I opened up the door, just opened it up slightly in case I was interrupting somebody. And uh, the computer was sitting on the bed. There was a few other things on the bed. And I was asked, hello. And I slid the door open further, and he was hanging from the uh, coat rack. It's a man hanging from a belt, from a, hope, uh, from a coat rack. That was it. Death is not a pretty scene. Ryan Jenkins was found dead in the hotel room in Hope, British Columbia, Canada. 
His body was discovered in the motel, hanging from the wall's clothing rack with a belt around his neck. No suicide note was found in the motel, but a one-page suicide note saved on Jenkins' computer, which was titled Last Will and Testament and dated August 20th, 2009, was later found by police. Ooh, this is a, a plot twist because it's running, he's running, he's taking all these steps to evade capture just to just to uh, throw the towel in. I know. And it's, he checked into the hotel on the 20th, so and he had been there for three days. Mm-hmm. So he had three days to think about what he was doing. And mm-hmm. in those three days, I mean, it wasn't that rash of a decision. His, his adrenaline gonna... has finally gone out of himself. He had he had gone from killing somebody, dismembering their body, Running going on away. the run. Yeah. He's this fugitive. He has to get across the border. So all this is he's not thinking about what he just did he's all thinking about survival he finally checks into this motel and like and what this else is, do you do this is when he starts to think about what he's done right how he's going to get out of it which he's not no he is not <laughs> Now, both principals in this tragic story are deceased. Obviously, the ripple effect for murder and suicide in any tragic event, the families are devastated by this violence mm-hmm. and by the intense media coverage of the death of their loved ones. And Ryan Jenkins' mother said to a Canadian media outlet, My son is innocent. I think he panicked, and I'm just dead inside. I'm devastated. What can I tell you? I love him. He's my only child. I can't have any phone calls anymore. That's so sad. Yeah, I feel for them. I I mean, they thought they had this charismatic, successful son, and to learn that he's capable and have the wool pulled off your eyes, it's just got to be crippling. Um, As someone without kids, Billy has them. I mean, especially an only child. That's your life. Ryan Jenkins' father, Dan Jenkins, told the Calgary Sun he was kind, he was sweet, he was innocent. Something that down there in these last four months, including this girl, just destroyed him. I advised him 50 times to get rid of that relationship. Oh, you. Yeah, I know. I read that quote, and I'm like, is this serious? Yeah, total. Your I wonder son the apple murdered, doesn't fall far, does it? dismembered an innocent woman, and then now you're going to blame her for their bad relationship, and that's why he went to kill her. That is the most disgusting thing I've ever heard. It's pretty disgusting, and who knows what lies his son had been telling him, so you have to look at that, too. Where- well, it could have been a projection of all these shitty things that he was doing to her about bringing other women, and then, you know, he was telling his his family or whatever that she was being unfaithful. Exactly. So who knows? He said, she said, but dozens of loved ones spoke to the media on Jasmine's behalf and just raved about her, which is telling about how much she was adored and loved by the people in her life. Here, we're going to play a clip now of Jasmine's mother's reaction to the news of Ryan's suicide. It was a it was a great relief that we weren't going to spend months and months of our life trying to find this person and bringing him to justice. Um, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, it's a relief to know that this man is not out there um, with the possibility of causing harm to other people. You know, I mean, that was a dangerous person. And now we don't have to worry about him. But I, you know, I feel like, you know, he was a coward and he took the easy way out. He didn't want to face the consequences of his actions. And that's how he dealt with it. Um, it's, it's just one step in closure. It's the beginning of a process of closure. I mean, God, oh, woman, it's so awful. So, I mean, it's... I guess a good point to say that while this was all happening, the show was airing. It was, I think, only a couple weeks in. Mm -hmm. I think they were up to episode three of uh, Megan Wants a Millionaire. So 
the networks are horrified. Ryan's on TV. This media firestorm is ensuing. It's all happening at one time. Network lawyers, I'm sure, are... Oh my God! It's like the worst. Oh my God! Yeah, and remember, remember that the first, these are just the first three episodes. You have the, all a bunch of guys, but it's eventually going to narrow down to two guys, and Ryan's going to become the star of this show. Right. right. So obviously. VH1 cancels the show. Well, yeah. They have no other option. And since they had recorded the show, they also recorded I Love Money, I think, three. And Ryan Jenkins was on it and ended up winning. And he actually tried to pick up his winner's check of a cool $5,200 a couple days <laughs> before Jasmine's body was discovered. And we don't know if he ever actually picked that up or not, right? He just tried? I'm not sure if he picked it up, but he wanted to. <laughs> Let's see what Megan's reaction to all of this was, too. I'm just completely horrified that this could happen, especially someone that I know would even ever do anything like it. I think it's terrible, and I feel really sorry for the girl and her family. I mean, he was always very nice and kind to me and seemed very, like, educated. And he would be, like, the least likely person I would ever expect to do something like that. He's just, like, a really nice guy. They're married. It was his wife. He met her after the show. They got married in Vegas. So... Cop said that Jenkins wrote that suicide note on August 20th, and it really did expose the blinding anger that led him to the murder of Jasmine Fury. And, you know, half of it was him talking about how much he loved her, and then half of it was how frustrated he was with her and, um, you know, how she made him jealous and, and, and all these other things. He didn't not acknowledge, he didn't take responsibility for the murder. But he did apologize to his family for all the negative attention that the case would uh, would generate and would continue to generate. So, um, you know, there was acknowledgement of other relationships that she had had that angered him. Again, he's pushing the blame back onto her with this suicide note, in a sense, where he's he's saying, I loved her. I loved her. She made me so jealous. She had these other relationships. Again, not this is a, a coward not taking responsibility for anything, even at the end. Right. And. Ryan and Jasmine were both dead, but the investigation was still unfolding. So on August 25th in West Hollywood, police were alerted to a 2007 Mercedes-Benz that had been suspiciously parked for a few days in a parking lot next to the West Hollywood Trader Joe's. And inside the car was coated with blood, indicating a violent struggle. The undercarriage had remnants of mud, weeds, and twigs, and police were able to determine that there was a violent struggle because of the swipes of the motions of blood evidence and the imprints of arms and hands, which is absolutely gruesome. Blood was also found on the back windshield, the passenger seat, and the back seat of the car. So there's blood everywhere, and also evidence of hair pulling. The blood evidence was consistent with the injuries that Jasmine sustained that were revealed in her autopsy, and that included a broken nose and significant blood loss, but there was no indication that any dismemberment or tooth removal occurred in the car, so that must have been far after. And then a letter written from Ryan to Jasmine was also found in the car's glove compartment, which was even more evidence of their tumultuous relationship. And this was different than the suicide note? Yes. God. Another letter, which I couldn't find the copy to, but I bet there's a poem. I bet there's a poem in there. <clears throat> now, based on all of this evidence collected during the course of the investigation, the police were able to come up with a plausible theory as to the circumstances revolving around the murder. And it's likely that Jasmine was beaten in the car after the San Diego poker tournament. Ryan then dragged her into their first floor hotel room through a private patio entrance that fronted the parking lot. 
Yes. Which enabled them to hide and from the surveillance, which is why evidence of that can't be seen in the surveillance footage pulled from the hotel. Jenkins left the hotel with Jasmine's body crumpled into the suitcase around 9 a.m. the following morning, which is then when he dumped the body in Buena Park before abandoning her car in West Hollywood, switching cars, and then skipping town. Yeah, you got to think at this poker tournament, which they left very late, most of the time at these poker tournaments, drinks are free. Mm -hmm. They come around. You don't even have to get up. There's Mm -hmm. usually people coming around, giving you drinks and everything. Something happened in the car. On those reality shows, they just feed you alcohol too, right? That's That's probably, it sounds like, and the videos I found of them, it's all party all the time. Well, you have to wonder too, if there was ever anything that happened there that you know, when they were drinking, that might have been uh, maybe not caught on camera or caught on camera a little bit. Or one of the producers saw. They mm-hmm. circled the wagons on this one, you right. know, and they're not going to say anything. So. No, of course. So following the announcement that Jenkins was connected to the murder, VH1 puts Megan Wants a Millionaire on indefinite hiatus. Right. Uh, out of respect for the family. They also, also never aired I Love Money 3. Never aired I Love Money Wasted. 3. That's expensive. That's the one he was shooting in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking millions and millions of dollars here. It also deleted the show's page from the official VH1 website and dropped any reruns of past shows from its schedule. You can still find clips of them mm-hmm. uh, around there on YouTube and on stuff. YouTube. Exactly. I do want to speculate about Ryan Jenkins' suicide. Right. Now, do you guys think that he was crippled with guilt or do you think he was upset he was caught? I feel like he was upset he was caught. I truly think he's a textbook sociopath. And there's nothing worse than losing somebody's ego in that way. Mm-hmm. And I think for him, it was just easier to end it than having to deal with the repercussions of getting caught. You know, I think it was, I don't necessarily think it was guilt, but I think he would have kept going. You know, he wasn't mm-hmm. caught. It wasn't like they were banging on his door. He felt he could get away with this. I yeah. think he could have still kept running. But I think everything hit him at once after all the adrenaline was gone and something in him snapped and he took the cowardly way out. He took the easy way out and decided to just end it there. I think if he felt any sort of guilt, it would have been written in one of these letters. And he had written that letter a couple days before he killed himself. It was a good amount of time after he had killed her. There would have been some sort of a confession. Now, some he, sort of guilt. he took no responsibility for any of his actions and really what he was trying to do was save his family from any of this negative attention to not have to go through a trial and all that. And this is this was his way out for doing that. That's how he painted it in that letter. Right. I bet you he's a mommy's boy and that's why he didn't admit it because he didn't want to hurt his mom's feelings. You think so? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Especially he's my only son. He's innocent. I'll just leave the seat of doubt. Maybe they won't prove it. And I could just be painted as this sad husband of a murdered wife. That, that just I somehow went on the run her. after her. Right. No, it looks really bad. But clearly this man doesn't think clearly. The statements from his parents were pretty interesting afterwards, too, because they believed in his innocence for sure. I wonder if that changed over time. Yeah. I Those were immediately after. So I think there were even prior to the car being found. So I think maybe for them, there was still some doubt as to their son's guilt. I also wonder, yeah, about the sister at that point, too. You were helping somebody run and hide from the police. At that right. Point, even if you didn't know what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, we were able to talk to the person who was one degree, very close one degree, separated from this murder. 
when I really thought about this, because I thought about it from time to time if this would happen, something, I don't think he intended on it. I'm not saying that doesn't make him evil. Because I think he's a terrible, horrible, evil person. So I wonder if there was drinking involved. I don't feel like he would do this as just a sober, normal guy. I didn't get that from him, like, as a vibe at all. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if this was, like, a really extreme situation that just happened and it was an accident. So sometimes I'll go on that train of thought. But then I remember that he choked her up. Mm-hmm. And that's when I'm like, wait a second. I can see this being an accident, and then you call the cops and you explain to them it was an accident. Not that you go further and, like, chop her body up. That's insane. So, no, it couldn't have been completely an accident. He has to be a sociopath. The situation that she found herself in afterwards and then finding out that he was on the run at the most magical place on Earth at Disney World, <laughs> thinking, like, if it wasn't for the producers who wanted this guy on another show... She would have been with this guy, and who knows what would have happened. Oh, my God. Seriously. I know. If she had her way, she would have been with him. Yeah. Right. Especially, it's like he battered his girlfriend in Canada. He assaulted Jasmine. This is a pattern. I think what Brandy said about it being an accident, I don't think he meant to kill her. I think Not he probably either. hit her too hard, killed her, and instead of taking responsibility, decided to try to cover his tracks. Whether it was an accident or not, I don't know about you guys. I couldn't pull some up dead person's teeth out with pliers. I'm not capable. I would no. be sick to my stomach. No, like, I mean, you're either capable of, a, or of you're that not. or you're not. And yeah. he clearly is. And that's the He's difference not. between a sociopath and not, in my mind. So the moral of the story is... Do reality background checks, you reality shows. My God. Do your background checks. I was going to say reality TV ruins lives, but we don't want to say that for you. <laughs> Mine's not going to be a reality. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> That was the time, that was the golden age of these competition spin-off reality shows and they've gone downhill and I'm sure this had something to do with that. Yeah, I mean I sh- I'm sure it didn't help. However, I would love to bring these back on TV with some people that are not murderers. Yes, one well, day. That's the problem though is that, you know, who wants to put themselves out there? <laughs> you're going to cast in this net. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, you're going to you're going to be on a show for even though it, it's 8 weeks but it really is truncated. It's really 3 weeks. You're going to be on a show for 3 weeks and then get engaged to somebody. Who's going to really won't say that they want to do that it's people that are people. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot but it's also a lot of people that are that are narcissists yeah. and not every narcissist is a sociopath or a killer but they, they do share a lot of the same traits and you're gonna when you throw out that net you're gonna catch one of them in there yeah no that's totally true it's a scary world mm-hmm. all right guys well that wraps up our first episode I feel good about it. I feel great about it. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram at the first degree at Alexis Linkletter at Billy Jensen at Jack Vanek. And we want to hear your stories. If you guys have a first degree connection to a murder or other stranger than fiction story, please write us at hello at the first degree podcast.com or DM us on Instagram. Um, there are a lot of ways to get a hold of us and uh, keep your friends close, but not that close. Rate and comment on iTunes. Oh, yeah. And listen and rate and comment whatever all those things thanks guys sources for this episode included quotes from the oc register for over 130 years mccormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive take over taco night no matter how chaotic your day is conquer the bake sale even if you get to it last minute and craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.